0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of Where Parents Talk, where every week we try to distill relevant and timely topics affecting kids 15 to 24 years old. We unpack them with the help of science, lived experience, and the expertise of our guests who are also parents. Later in the show, we'll talk about parenting with resilience following tragedy. Up first, the epidemic of bullying, be that in the playground, classroom, workplace or online has been fueled in recent years by the internet, technology, social media and the digital world. The ensuing impact has been well documented around the globe, often resulting in mental health issues and in the most extreme cases, suicide. Today we're going to look at this growing societal concern through the lens of a parent, specifically what is a parent's role in bullying to discuss this we're joined by a father of three a practicing clinical child and family psychologist a social scientist college professor author and mentor dr tim cavell is also a prevention researcher who has work that is funded by the u.s government dr cavell joins us from fayetteville arkansas thank you so much for being here
1: Glad to be here. Thank you.
0: I'd like to start, Dr. Cavell, by asking you, the parents of a child who is a bully, a child who repeatedly exerts power or force over others, what have you observed in your practice about the mothers and fathers of a child who is a bully when they've come to see you for help?
1: I think there's two pieces to keep in mind. One is that children who use aggression or coercion, which can take on various forms of threat or physical violence, are at risk for later problems, uh, regardless of if they're bullies. Sometimes they're indiscriminate in who they're coercing or aggressing against. The child who's coercive and a bully oftentimes is a child who's struggling socially, who's uh, perhaps quite also emotionally reactive and is hard to like, perhaps mean and obnoxious. And so they might use bullying as a way to have social influence. So it's a combination of peer relationship or social problems, plus a tendency to use aggression and coercion to influence others. So uh, it's it's a challenge for parents. And I would say the first order of business as a parent is always being uh, focus on your child's use of coercion or aggression as a way to influence others. It's, it's an important, uh, serious risk factor.
0: So let's break that down a little bit because oftentimes a parent who has to come to grips with the fact that their child might be a bully doesn't want to accept that. So denial is part of this process for many families. What do you advise parents who refuse to believe that their child may in fact be a bully?
1: I would suspect that few parents would be surprised to learn that their child may be in trouble at school for bullying, um, except if they're part of a group of kids who are collectively participating in bullying a a child who takes bullying behavior to school is oftentimes a bullyish and aggressive and coercive at home. So that's, it wouldn't be a complete shock to parents if they heard that news on the other hand, Uh, that some parents of children who who are not aggressive, who are typically not engaged in those kinds of behaviors, might find themselves part of a group that is collectively engaged in tormenting or teasing a child that's been identified as distinct, different, not like us, and worthy of being bullied.
0: When you encounter parents of a bully, like what concerns you most about, you know, what you're going to share with them and how they're going to Accept this, and then the, sort of the tips and strategies that you provide them from you know from there on.
1: It's a it's a fascinating question because um, as a psychologist, it it's rare for a parent of a bully to seek help. It just uh, just doesn't happen that often. It, that uh, they might say, "My child is hitting his siblings or her siblings, or getting in trouble at school," but it's it's rare that the identified problem is bullying. Um, But that's, again, different from a child who may be otherwise doing well, but has been identified at the school as engaging in bullying behavior. The way this uh, rolls out in schools with peers is such that the children who are most bullish, most likely to hurt other kids are hurting people at home first.
0: On that note, what does the science say when it comes to how to effectively manage a child who is a bully? if you are their parent.
1: I think you'd want to recognize the seriousness of aggression as a developmental marker of of later risk, Um, which would mean making the concession that something needs to change, which means collaborating with the school uh, staff who are saying something's amiss, something needs to change those steps by themselves are not easier for parents to to go to to admit that their child is having problems that they may have missed something as parents um it's oftentimes more likely that they might want to be defensive and defend their child's behavior um and sometimes some versions of bullying are less clear-cut you know could be rival clicks or it could be you know uh, concerns about misunderstanding. So it, 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 can, it can take many shades. So I think collaborating a parent's collaboration with professionals, including school staff, to help their child is probably the most difficult obstacle uh, because they may not be buying into that narrative.
0: You are listening to Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino, and we're discussing a parent's role in bullying with Dr. Tim Cavell, a father, a child and family psychologist, a researcher, and a professor. I wanna talk about the bullied child now. Uh, What are some of your general observations within the families that you encounter whose child has been bullied?
1: Any child that is vulnerable to being socially excluded is vulnerable to being bullied. So it could be a child with a disability, a child who's uh, who's marginalized because of race or ethnicity, There uh, there could be any number of of features, some of them rather uh, inconsequential though, but enough to start uh, a process of stigmatization and other rising that gets the child separated And, and that becomes a potential opportunity for a child that's looking to climb the social ladder or to maintain his or her social position if I tease this child or bully this child, then I'm part of the larger accepted group. I'm not other.
0: What would you say are some of the evidence-based findings that you can share about the impact of a child who is bullied over time?
1: The research is fairly consistent in showing that the outcomes are, are serious and can be long-term. Um, and, and it, but it's important to recognize that the negative outcomes from being bullied, particularly chronically bullied, is that it's in part because of how one has been treated. Okay. And sort of cast aside. But the other process that happens is that children who are bullied chronically start to start to take over or occupy that that role. Psychologically, they, tar- they, they begin they began. There's a vulnerability to begin to see themselves as a victim as sort of worthy of being treated that way. That's, that becomes their reality, and they've kind of accommodated to that reality. And as you can imagine, those sort of accommodations psychologically can cause one to feel pretty depressed and at, at times discouraged and hopeless. So that's, that's one of the more important outcomes is a sense of discouragement, hopelessness, and depression because my life is being defined in ways that are not very positive, and this is my lot in life.
0: We'd like to continue this conversation with our listeners. So tell us what you think about what a parent's role in bullying entails on Where Parents Talk social media channels. And be sure to check out this week's giveaway on whereparentstalk.com. Dr. Cavell, I want to pick up on that last point uh, with respect to a child who's bullied over time and the victimization piece. What ideally can or should a school's role be in this scenario as it then relates to the parent of that child
1: number one is of course protecting the child particularly from any sort of physical uh or other kinds of intensive harm that could come to the child that's always priority uh, number one uh, sec- secondly though is to understand uh, how can this child feel like part of a group and be perceived as part of a group um, and think about how difficult that would be. Imagine a child being in a school and the reputation that child carries is, is negative and and leads often to that child's victimization. It's not going to be easy to turn the tide on that negative reputation. And sometimes changing schools going to a new set of peers may be necessary. So I, I, and, and again, this, the science here is not very, uh, deep, uh, we we tend to what what typically has been done with anti-bullying is to go into a school, try to create a positive school climate, set clear rules, strict rules against bullying, and uh, perhaps uh, encourage students to to be defenders of kids who might be bullied. And what we find when those kinds of anti-bullying interventions are implemented with integrity then you get a pretty significant drop in the overall percentage of kids who say they are bullied, okay, which is good news. The bad news hidden in there is that for the chronically bullied child, those children are less likely to benefit from that kind of intervention, and now they stand out because there's fewer of them. So it's been... Uh, described as the healthy context paradox, that when you create a healthier school context, the kids who are chronically bullied may paradoxically be worse off.
0: What would you say in terms of actionable advice that, that parents could look at for dealing with bullying in their own families?
1: Good question. Uh, I would say two things. Uh, first is inclusion look for ways and opportunities for your children to feel included and accepted. Uh, one of the ways that we do that is we use college student mentors that w- visit kids at school who are being bullied as a way to help them reintegrate into, the, into their peer group. Uh, so there may be other ways that you can uh, parents can help their children be included. The more included you are, the more friends you have, the more accepted you are, you're far less vulnerable to being bullied. And so it's it's, it's a protective uh, buffer, if you can create inclusion. The second piece is beliefs. The beliefs that children have about their plight, are, you know, particularly for children who have been sort of bullied for in a persistent manner. Uh, if they lock into the belief that this is permanent, this is me, this is who I am, I deserve this, uh, that's pretty dangerous in terms of their long-term outcomes. Uh, and so I sometimes, uh, it's helpful to, to pay attention to a growth mindset that that I can change. My future, is it can be something different. This is going to be temporary, uh, as opposed to children uh, settling into that belief that it's going to be permanent, and it means that uh, I'm, a, I'm an unlikable person. So inclusion and beliefs.
0: Lots of great advice there, Dr. Tim Cavell, child and family psychologist, researcher, and professor at the University of Arkansas. Thank you so much for your time and your insight today.
1: Glad
0: to help. Welcome back. Losing a spouse or partner unexpectedly is devastating. When that happens and you have four children under the age of 10 to raise on your own, the challenge is enormous. That is precisely the harsh reality that our next guest faced in 2009 when her husband died following a sudden heart attack. Lisa Lisson has not only raised her four children as a widow, but has done so while continuing to set new highs in her professional career. She is the first Canadian and the first female to be named President of FedEx Canada, a job she's held now for more than 10 years. She's also an author. Her book is called Resilience, Navigating Life, Loss and the Road to Success. Lisa Listen joins us from Mississauga, Ontario.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It is truly an extraordinary story of heartbreak, strength, and courage. And you know, Lisa, when we talk about loss and resilience, certainly two concepts that many of us have experienced in different ways over the course of this pandemic, what would you say that you learned about resilience during this extraordinary time generally and as a mother?
2: Firstly, it's it's really taught us how 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 things can change just so quickly in our lives. Number one, um, and I always say to my kids, don't waste a day. You know, one of the many things that we all share on this beautiful planet Earth is that none of us knows what tomorrow brings. And so I'm always telling my kids, don't waste a day. Make the most out of every day. Focus on the things you can control and let go of the things that you can't because it absolutely will waste all of your precious energy. And also, too, I think what this pandemic has also taught us is that the little things in life are truly the most important and treasured things. Just you know, the ability to see loved ones face to face, the ability to hug. So I think all the things that we, you know, we, that we would take for granted, we certainly aren't going to do it anymore. And so as we're coming out of this pandemic and starting to see some light, I'm telling my children, I'm telling my friends, my family, let's try and find those silver linings in this pandemic to help us grow stronger.
0: Certainly, resilience has been a core theme of your life. You lost your husband suddenly, and your four children were under the age of 10 at the time. Now you've got three in their 20s and one teenager. What would you say was your gut instinct and your approach about how you were going to go about raising your children through such a tragic and
2: devastating
0: time for you and for them?
2: You know, it was obviously quite devastating to lose to lose my husband, and well, I I had kept him in a in a vegetative state for two years, waiting for a miracle um, that. Uh, you know, was unfortunately didn't come, but we I mean, miracles happen, happen every day. You just need to see if you're going to get yours for whatever situation you're dealing with. But what I realized is that, number one, I had to be very honest with the kids. Um, and, you know, when they would say, is daddy going to come back out of his coma? I said, well, I hope so, but we have to wait and see. So number one is being very honest with them. Number two, um, to reassure them. So I would tell them that, you know, when, when Patrick actually passed away, you know, I told him, "Look at Daddy's now. You know, gone to heaven, and he's and he's with his mom, and he's dancing with his mom now." And I tried to just paint this a picture for them of everything is going to be okay, even though I didn't know how it was going to be okay. But I just it's it's very important with these young when the kids were very young at the time, to to be calm, to be reassuring, and I would tell them everything's going to be okay because what I will tell you is this: young children are like sponges and they feed off of the parents' energy. So when we're off, they're off. And so at that young age, when they were too young to really understand kind of like, you know, the impact of Patrick passing away and the impact that was going to have on me, I just kept reassuring them that everything's going to be okay. And they said, okay, mom. And that was fine. So that's probably the biggest advice that I would give to people talking to children during difficult times is they just need some reassurance and positive thoughts and optimism. Because what I have learned is that research has proven that being optimistic reduces your stress, reduces your anxiety, and helps you press on. And it's so important to maintain a positive and optimistic mindset.
0: Absolutely. Our guest is Lisa Listen. Widow, mother of four, author, and president of FedEx Canada. You know, when you're going through something as shocking as what you went through, and it's been 12 years, but I don't know that it gets any easier. I wonder, Lisa, what were some of the staples in your family's daily rituals that you strived to preserve that were non-negotiable, despite now having to be a single parent and balancing such a busy career?
2: Well, first of all, I will say it was my beautiful mom that sent me on my path to learning about resilience. And she said to me, after Patrick passed away, life is not about what happens to you. It's about what you choose to do with what happens. So when things in your life feel like they're spiraling out of control, remember you have control and you have control of how you respond. And the staples for me that I learned is that resilient people maintain a positive attitude no matter what. They believe brighter days are ahead, even though they're not quite sure how or when they're going to arrive, they believe that they're coming. Believing is the most successful engine behind every endeavor in life is believing. I also learned to another staple is to to live with daily gratitude. So I started waking up after Patrick passed away and I still do it today is I just wake up and I'm so grateful that my eyes open. And like I said, none of us know what tomorrow brings. My husband went to sleep and he basically never woke up. He had no idea that that was going to be his truly last day with us in the family. And so they, and, and, and so living with gratitude at the end of the day, I always say what I'm grateful for. And what I tell my kids is this, if we're healthy and we're safe, then we are truly blessed because with the help of others, we can fix the rest. And so those are the things, living with daily gratitude, being very mindful of the thoughts I'm allowing in my head, maintaining a positive attitude, and not wasting a day, and focusing on the things that I can control, and letting go of the things that I can't.
0: While you were dealing with all of the things going on at home and all of the emotions, you continued to set the bar high in terms of your professional career. What
2: gave you the strength to do that? First of all, I believe in mentors, so I've always had mentors in my whole life. Um, Patrick did as well, and so my mentors really helped me with my career, and what they would tell me is this, the most successful people in life, and I tell my children this too, write down their goals, both personally and professionally, short and long term, but it's not just about writing them down. They also talk to people about them they let their intentions be known because you never know what door may open when you talk about a goal that you want to achieve. So they talk about them. It's also very important to visualize. They say when you visualize a goal that you want to achieve in your mind, it's like having a personal trainer inside your head. Your body and your mind sees you achieving that and it starts to put you in action of achieving it. And the last thing I will say is it's so important, especially if you are a single mom like me, raising kids, to carve out white space on your calendar. And that's one of my coping mechanisms. So I carve out white space, both personally and professionally, where I pause and reflect. I pause and reflect on my goals. I pause and reflect and think, okay, what's one baby step that I could take tomorrow towards my goals that I didn't take today? And it's all about figuring out that what that one step is that you can do tomorrow, because if you don't do take a step, you can't expect things to change in your life if you don't change something about what you do. So my mentors told me all these powerful things. So after Patrick passed away, I had already had this great framing in my mind about achieving what you want in life by doing the things I said around these goals and so after he passed away, thank goodness, I already had this framework that I could continue to move forward on to allow me to not only be a single mom and a widow to my four kids, but also to carry on with my career goals of being the first Canadian and the first female to ever run a division um, for FedEx around the world. So I tell my kids how important it is around achieving what you want in life by by using these steps that I just shared now about goals. And it's more than just writing them down on a piece of paper. You really have
0: a wonderful way of simplifying it. But you know, to paint a picture of what we're talking about here, you lost your husband and then just over a year later, you're named to this position. And you are now in charge of a workforce of more than 10,000 people. It's a busy job to say the least. So how have you gone about balancing work and family?
2: So I would say that the number one thing that really helps me maintain a balance of being a mom and also running a very large company here in Canada is that is carving out that white space on my calendar to pause and reflect and to get off of the Ferris wheel of life. I That to me... If I don't have my white space and I honestly can't function. So it's, so I carve out three to five hours a week at work where I'm not on a phone. I'm not in a zoom meeting and I'm pausing and I'm reflecting and I'm breathing. Same thing on my personal side. So I will carve out time where I tell my kids, you know, mommy's going to go upstairs and read and unless someone is bleeding and, and it's not stopping, please let, give mommy some quiet time. And I will just sit and pause and reflect. So that probably is the most profound thing. The second thing I will share is that when you think about when we get, when life is chaotic, normally it's because we're not organized. So another very simple technique that's so effective for me is I have two to-do lists. I have a work one and I have a house one. And, and when I think of things that need to go on the list that pops in my head, I automatically grab my phone and I write it down. Then every the end, every Sunday, I go and look at my to-do list for the house and my to-do list for the for the for, for my work, and I figure out what can I, what needs to happen next week, what are the must-dos for next week. And that's why I never miss anything. I don't miss an important event for my kids. I don't miss an important follow-up action that I need to do for work. It sounds very simple but I'm telling you all the things that I've been sharing what I've learned is sometimes the most simple things in life are the most effective if they're applied consistently.
0: Who would you say was part and is part of your village who's helped you raise these four children during everything that you've been through all the adversity that you faced both personally and professionally.
2: For whatever reason I find that sometimes mums We have a hard time asking for help. And right after Patrick had his heart attack, I know I was very guilty of that. I thought I could be this super mom and do everything. And I quickly realized I can't. So I had to ask for help. And I tell so many moms that I mentor, the number one thing you raise your hand and ask for help. There is no such thing as a perfect person on the planet. And we need to stop trying to be so perfect in every aspect of our lives. So for me, I reached out to. I actually have six brothers, so I reached out to my brothers to help me do do driving. Uh, my father would take my son to his hockey practices. When I took the girls to dance, I am blessed with an incredible mother and role model who would step in at any given time. Um, I had I have a wonderful friends network that uh, would come and you know stay with the kids if I was because I needed that white space too. So I would say, look, can, can someone come over and just watch my kids for about three hours? I'm just going to go for a nice walk, uh, walk down by the water, bring my book, bring a little cup of tea because and, and just be. And so I would really honestly reach out to anyone that I could so I could maintain my white space because that was my mental health time. And that's what I tell moms right now, a neighbor. Oh, I'm sorry. That's another thing. I had fantastic neighbors. I was so blessed with fantastic neighbors at the time that they would, they would take my kids for a sleepover. They would come and knock at my door and say, we're taking your kids tonight. You can go out for a friend. You can stay at home. So I was just so incredibly blessed. And even till this day, you know, I rely on so many people to help because although my kids are older, you know, they still, you know, I still prior to the pandemic, obviously I was traveling a lot and I still would need people to come in and help and check in on them when I'm not here. So very blessed with a very large um, network of people that um, I can call upon. And I tell moms this all the time, don't try and do everything yourself, you will burn out.
0: What made you decide to write a book focused on resilience?
2: When Patrick passed away, and I was saying to myself, um, I can't do this. I can't be a single mom. I won't be, I can't do my career. And I, my, I had such negative self-talk because I couldn't see the light. And then I realized that this is not going to get me anywhere. I realized that I had to try and find a way to teach myself to get through this. And when I went and researched about the word resilience, The definition of resilience is getting through a life force that hits you. And it can be personally or professionally, no matter how big or small, it's getting through it and coming out the other side, just as strong, or if not stronger than when you started. The other thing I learned is I always thought people that overcame really terrible things were, they had this genetic thing that they were born with. But what I realized is that absolutely every single person on the planet can teach themselves resilience. It is a muscle we all have, and it's a muscle we all can strengthen. And how do we do that? We strengthen it by looking for the life lessons. So for me, as terrible as this tragedy was of losing my husband, my high school sweetheart, I had to focus on what are the life lessons I can take away from this to help me come out the other side stronger. And though those life lessons were about gratitude, being grateful. I mentor a lot of women right now that are widows and they didn't even get a chance to have a child with their partner before they passed away. And how blessed am I to have had four with my beautiful husband and my son is the spitting image of him. So focusing on gratitude, positive self-talk, believing brighter days are ahead. These are all characteristics that, You can adapt. Anyone can adapt these to strengthen your resilience muscle, no matter what you're going through. And that's why I gravitated to this word. And I taught myself and I truly at the end of the day, after a year, as you mentioned, of Patrick passing away, they give me the top job in Canada only being a widow a year. And I realized, oh, my gosh, this resilience techniques work because my muscle was getting stronger and stronger by the day. No, it's not, it's not a walk in the park by any stretch. And, and, we, and it's okay to have down days. We have to give ourselves permission. We can't be optimistic every day. Those down days make you realize how positive the good days can actually be. But I wrote the book because I realized that these concepts are simple. And I wanted to share my story of how I did it in the hopes that if anyone is struggling with anything in their life, that if one person that read my book could feel not alone and could try some of the things that I taught myself, then that does my heart good, knowing that Patrick's lost life um, and his legacy now is in that book that can help anyone that is trying to figure out how to strengthen their own resilience muscle.
0: Lisa listen. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today.
2: Thank you very much for having me.